Presenting for the first time in radio, the amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon and Dale Arden. These thrilling adventures come to you as they are pictured each Sunday in the Comic Weekly, the world's greatest pictorial supplement of humor and adventure. The Comic Weekly, now printed in 32 tabloid-sized pages, each page in full four colors, is distributed everywhere as a part of your Hearst Sunday newspaper. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> Welcome to Astounding Radio. You're living in the second golden age of pulp, zombies, cyborgs, and AI. This week, we'll focus on Star Trek Discovery, Blade Runner, and Neural Nets, which happens to be our current call for submissions, open until the 28th of October. So, let's start with Neural Nets. I'm sure we've got a lot of writers listening to the podcast. Um, What is a Neural Net? A Neural Net is... Dictionary defines it as a conglomeration of nerve cells working together for a common purpose or a computer program that simulates that same thing. Right, and the, the current call fully is neural nets, uplinks, and wetware. So um, wetware is actually the combination of technology and living tissue. So uh, brain implants and shadow run, uh, old... Uh, role-playing game, where you would access the internet, the skin on Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-1000. Um, uplinks? Is is a data transmission, generally what they mean when we're talking uplinks in sci-fi, is uploading of the human consciousness in some way to a machine, think transcendence, transcendence um, or something as simple as what Neo did in The Matrix. He uplinked his mind into the Matrix. Absolutely. He's also a really good example of wetware. Yes, right? because when, he had built in... When you find out that humans are batteries, all of those little electrode things sticking out of his body is wetware. And the Matrix itself is actually a giant neural net. So the, the Matrix may be like the best way to explain the call. Uh, there's lots of authors who's, who've written about this. Philip K. Dick... Uh, with a lot of his work. Uh, William doing, H. Gibson, yeah, who's one of the modern... Um, Cyberpunk's father Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk. yes. It's kind of the, the start of that. Um, basically, the main thing we're looking for is stories that deal with the connection between human consciousness and the machine. And sometimes quite literally, in the case of wetware. But uh, it could be androids, like right. the sense in, in uh, Blade Runner. It could be, um, it could be cyborgs. It could be neural enhancements, um, absolutely. Like from the Johnny Mnemonic movie. Um, Have you seen that recently? I watched it. Not in in the spring. Or so I watched it in the spring doing research for the screenplay I was writing. And I remember Johnny Mnemonic being an amazing film. I saw it in the theater. I loved it. It is, it's fun still because Ice-T's in it and Henry Rollins is in it and Keanu Reeves is 
as always, just tolerable. But the movie itself is just the biggest piece of cyber poop I've ever seen. Um, the only thing it really has going for it, it is, up to that point, it was one of the few true cyberpunk movies we had. Right, yeah. It, um, it we didn't really have a was. whole lot. Uh, the Matrix came along, and it was far better. Uh, and it's really a form of cyberpunk. Right. And it, um, it was, like, almost ten years later, maybe twelve. Um, and I have to say that, you know... Um, also with Keanu Reeves. Keanu, Keanu, Keanu Reeves, I'm not... I don't think he's just tolerable. I mean, a lot of movies, he's not that great. Uh, but he's had some stuff. You look at the original Bill and Ted's. He was awesome in that. <laughs> yeah, but... So, here's here's the thing. Bill and Ted's was just fun. Right? Yes. In, in general. I don't know that I would say he was awesome, because the character didn't require any acting. But my, my, opinion, <laughs> but it, my opinion of Keanu, and I will will defend this to the death. The only movie I've seen him in that actually found a way to make his lack of emotion work was um, John... Uh, why am I blanking out on the last name? Talking about the movie Constantine? No, no, not, not Constantine. Um, uh, killer who takes out the entire mob. John Wick. John Wick, because they kill his puppy. Um, that movie is so much fun, and yet for his character, right, to be a hitman, um, and to be pretty much emotionless throughout the whole movie, right? I, but I, but he's not an emotionless actor. He does befuddled really well, which is why he was good in the Matrix because he spent a good part of the movie looking befuddled, looking like he didn't understand what was going on. He see, but I don't off. think that was acting. <laughs> I just think that was Keanu. But he pulled that off in the Matrix. I thought he did a good job in the Matrix. I liked him in the movie Constantine. I um, hated that movie. But I I love Constantine. I liked the TV show. The TV show CBS was a canceled. far better adaptation of the comic. Right. But if you don't look at it as being related to the Hellraiser comic, yeah, it's just a movie on its own. It's not a it's not a bad movie. I loved um, what was her name that played Gabriel in the movie. Uh, she's always a great remember. actress. Um, and the guy that played Lucifer in the movie, who was the... Lucifer was good. But we are going way afield. Although you can't really have a conversation about uh, cyberpunk, which is the bigger genre that what we're talking about with neural nets, uplinks, and wetware fits into, without really talking about Keanu because of The Matrix, because of John Wick. Well, or John not Wick, John not... Wick, uh, Johnny Mnemonic. He likes Johns. John Constantine, John Wick, Johnny Mnemonic. Um, I'm sure there's like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing you can play with John names and Keanu. Um, but well, and his name in... No, his name in The Matrix was Thomas. Yeah. But it was still another super common... Right. Well, land it, name. Just like his acting. Uh. <laughs> I need a rim shot. But I'm Anyways, this is not to trash Keanu. I mean, well, and, honestly, he he's one of those celebrities that lives a normal life. And donates quite a bit of money to charity and stays out of the limelight. So I do respect him. And John Wick impressed me because it really did. His strengths showed there, the two of them. Um, <laughs> I, it, think, I, I think I want to get back to something because you said that the call all fits into cyberpunk. And it, and it doesn't. Cyberpunk all fits into our call pretty much because it deals somewhat with wetware or uh, neural nets. But you can have a story... That involves neuralists, that involves some kind of android brain that's not cyberpunk. It could be pure sci-fi. Okay, so so I, I get your point. 
as one of the two editors, I, I'm going to show a preference for cyberpunk. But you're right. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, could fit into this that wouldn't fit into cyberpunk. Um, I mean, heck, even the, the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains, could actually fit into this very, very loosely because it's using technology to transplant a brain and increase a, a neural net. I don't know that you can do that in a short story. Well, Johnny Depp had the movie Transcendence, which was about transcendence, but it's not a cyberpunk version. Right, yeah. So you yeah. can do stuff that deals with the human consciousness or with with AI at, in any form. Uh, iRobot, which was a movie that's supposedly based off of an Isaac Asimov book, but it's really... The collection of short stories, yeah, which are brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I liked the movie, but the movie it wasn't that related to the stories they came from, other true. than they shared the law of robotics. If, um, if you're listening to this and you haven't read iRobot, Nicodemus the Web Slinger, that's our new name for our web guy. It sounds less derogatory than the web guy. Probably should post a link to a copy of it for you because it's one of Asimov's bests. Um, just because it, it brings a human element into robotics. Um, Especially other... in, in the overarching series because Asimov had two main series and I think Caves of Still was the first of the uh, robot series. Right. Um, but you had the series that dealt with the robots and then you had the Foundation series. Right. Uh, both really good series. And he ended up bringing them together later on. Um, and you see the... Yeah, it, it, they're, they're just really well done and they're both a good series and they end up coming together. And both of them kind of fit... I mean, the robot series obviously fits in here. The Foundation series, less so, but it deals with a made-up science that he created called Psychohistory, I think is what he right, called it, yeah. which is this, allowed him to predict human behavior in mass... Of large bodies of humans over a period of time. So, kind of predict the future. Interesting. It's kind so. of a, a combination of sociology and statistics. I was about to say, it sounds a lot like what marketing people try to do today. But to it was, you know, trends. considering when he wrote all, all of his right. stuff, too, it was way ahead of its time. Oh, absolutely. Um, I learned an interesting fact about Asimov yesterday in uh, a genre fiction class which was he had five typewriters in his office at any given time, each with a different manuscript. And he would move from typewriter to typewriter and continue where he had left off. Yeah, because he didn't have the uh, word processing right. programs that we do where you could just have different windows right. on your no, computer. No, he, he had actual different, different typewriters. So while we're talking about man and machine uh, for this particular call, that man was a machine. Yes, the number of books he printed. It, it, you kind of had to have been writing five stories at once to publish the number of books that he published. Exactly. Probably one of the most prolific modern authors of Absolutely. in the world. It, I can't write to his level, but someday, damn it, I'm going to grow pork chops just like his because I can do that. Um, to heck with the hipster beards. I'm going to get the, the big Asimov sideburns someday. Yeah, and maybe they'll come back in style by then. Maybe I'll bring them back. But uh, anyway, so for the call, we want short stories, 7,500 word max, um, needs to fit into this, this bigger concept of the interaction between humanity and technology. Um, could be on a very personal level, could be 
a sweeping world. But what we want in that is a good story. We both love sci-fi passionately, but one of the flaws of sci-fi as a genre is sometimes the concept of the world is beautiful and the story isn't. That happens a lot with, I was about to say with older writers, but even with newer writers. Sometimes like, this is such an amazing idea, and then the characters fall flat. Or you write in first person when you should have written second person. Um, Not second. Or don't, third, don't, don't sorry. Don't write in, yeah. in second. Yeah, don't, don't ever write in second. I was thinking third because really, you either write in first or you write in third. Nobody writes in second. But but in yeah, my not, not primitive mind, I just go, okay, so this story, I is in first, he is in second, or she. And it's not. He or she is third. And I, I still slip that up. But uh, yes, never write in second person. I don't think I've ever read anything in second person that I wanted to read. Um, there's a book I've been meaning to read, um, that's second person, um, I'm trying to remember the title of it now, it's upstairs, something circus, oh, actually, um, there's it's a, a modern, it's a modern fantasy, and it's listed as one of the, one of the greats on a lot of lists, um, and it's one of the rare books that's written in second person that's done well. It's it's a it's very difficult to do second person well. I, I need to re- retract my I've never read anything I wanted to in second person. Um, I read a young adult uh, mystery called The Naturals, and the book isn't in second person, but it's in third person. But periodically, the author deviates from that because the serial killer that one of the characters is profiling talks to you as the reader. Um, and luckily for me, it happened every time there was some ooh, teen romance moment that she would do that, and I'm like, I'm throwing this book down, but I know the author, and, and felt I had to read some of her work, because she's brilliant. Um, and then she would get the creepy serial killer, and I never thought I would be happy to be in the head of a serial killer, but um, <laughs> it worked really well to keep me You'd away rather from... rather be there than the, involved in a 17-year-old... Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, this interaction between technology and humanity, um, big sweeping worlds might be okay, but only if the characters actually work. Even though these are stories about tech, they're stories about people and... Um, that's something that everyone should keep in mind. 7,500 word max. Um, we want reprints and original stories. I, I know a lot of publishers will not take reprint prints, but uh, we kind of think that's garbage. Um, as writers, I mean, if you think about to the first golden age of pulp, the way these writers made their living is they churned out story after story after story, and then they sold them to anthologies or other magazines as reprints for a lesser rate, but they still got paid. If you're writing, if you're passionate about writing, you should be getting paid for your writing. So if you've published a story you think fits the call somewhere else, by all means, submit it to us. Um, If we agree with the previous publisher that this is a great story, we will include it in the anthology. Uh, Why are we doing Neural Nets, Uplinks, and Wetware this month? We're doing it for a couple of reasons. One is we think that this is a subject that it's always good to cover. Uh, it's interesting. It's topical with the all the uh, 
the trend lately to talk about the singularity and the potential for the humans to eventually put their consciousness into machines. Um, it's just something that's worth talking about. In addition, we have the 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 new Blade Runner movie coming out, right, which Blade we Runner thought twenty forty nine. Um, the first movie was a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Um, and the book, if, if you, some people I, I get don't, do not like Philip K. Dick. He wrote in a different time and wrote under the influence of a lot of drugs. But the, the novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, is just one of my favorites. So we wanted to give a nod to, uh, to Philip K. Dick, his work, and the way he explored human consciousness and machines. Absolutely. So, um, Blade Runner 2049 is coming out October 6th. Uh, I saw something on a different geek geek site. Uh, We actually shared it from the Facebook page. Um, Early critical reviews. People love this movie. I have been... From the moment they said we're making a sequel to Blade Runner, I was just like, why? What's the point? Sequels usually are pretty terrible. Um, at least they didn't set it before the original Blade Runner because then I would be ranting about we don't need any more prequels. Yeah, those uh, are generally even worse than sequels. sequels. And, and while there are exceptions to the sequel rule, you have things like Empire Strikes Back. Great sequel. Best uh, of, the best Star Wars has to offer, I think. The, um, the third Indiana Jones movie. Great sequel. You also have... Are you disagree there? <laughs> Uh, I don't want to get too far off the topic. I enjoyed uh, the one with Sean Connery. I mean, Sean Connery, how could you not enjoy yes. it? But I'm not sure it was a great movie. It was definitely better than the fourth one. Yes, and I think even and a little than, better, better than, than the, the second, second one. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not saying it's necessarily better than the first one, but it managed to maintain... Okay. To bring back everything you had in the first one and add a little bit to it. Oh, okay, I could accept that. See, when we, we talk about Empire... In my mind, Empire is better than Star Wars. You can't have Empire well, without Star Wars, but Empire is a better film. And in, a, in another one of those rare cases, I like the movie Aliens. The second one, to me, is one of the best ones. And it deviated because it's less strictly horror than the original Alien, and it's more of an action-adventure horror. I, I have to, to sever our friendship at this <laughs> point. I like Aliens. It's a good adventure movie, but... Alien is a masterpiece. It is. It is a and great Aliens movie. is just a B movie. And I you, love B movies. I was gonna say I love and you have when you have an introduction of Michael Beam in that movie. And and you have was it Bill Paxton, Bill yes. Pullman, I can do Bill Paxton. Paxton. Um and yet you've got that stupid cat. And and the whole in the first alien Ripley Sigourney Weaver is fighting for survival and she's doing a bang up job just because she's a human and that's great and in the second movie it's Ripley's maternal instincts that basically drive her and I I, I sort of feel like after making this there's not a lot of women leads in sci-fi that are are treated really fairly Uh, Sarah Connor is a good example of one who is Ripley um Leia somewhat in Star Wars, but oh, she's well, they still, still the managed to put her distress. in the bikini with the slave collar. I mean, I'm not going to complain about that one. I was like 14 or 15 when that came out. And yeah, they definitely objectified her, and and I'm very much against that. But when it came out, I was a kid and didn't know any better. Um, 
so Ripley is this amazing piece of sci-fi, and then in Aliens, it's like, oh, it's because she's a woman. She has to be fighting for maternal instincts. And it's like, no, she she's this bad the, character that's she's, fighting for survival. She's a badass in the second movie, like she was in the first. She was fighting before. She just that, but in, in the second one, she's saving a kitten. And Newt, the little girl, and I, I just, I just think they could have done better. I don't think they needed think, to give her a reason to. I fight. think in the first one, while it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. It's still a traditional horror movie. You take a group of people, oh, absolutely, you it's, isolate them, you give them a monster. The people slowly die off. It's a gothic horror story set in the space station. And yes, just listening to the sound effects oh, in that movie. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great movie. In the second movie, though, I like the fact that one they dealt with. Life after, you know, which at first was her coming back and no one listening to her and her ended up having to get a job as a dock worker and right. dealing with some of that and then taking it further. Okay, we sent people out there. Now it's a whole colony. And now, of course, people being what they are, we're not going to send in one person to fight these. So you get space marines. Right, and, and you could do that and still have her be... You know, this amazingly strong woman, you don't need the maternal thing. I never saw it as her being maternal as, well, I guess, I mean, she's protecting a child, but I think whether you're a woman or a man, you're going to do that too. You're protecting the survivor, the lone survivor. Again, you've got a little girl who's the one person that managed to elude all the aliens. So in a way, that's empowering too. I don't know. I, I think there was, and I haven't seen it for quite a while. But there was just some seeds where it's like, Ripley and Alien, no maternal instinct. Ripley and Aliens, and it's just, it's, it's the way Sigourney Weaver looks at Newt. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it is what it is. Well, and, and there's no maternal instinct in the first one because there's no children. Right. And, and I think that makes her a more believable character for that far in the future. Um, on a deep space mission, I mean... Yeah, you're not going to have children on the deep space mission. Right, but in a The person that signed up for that life, male or female, isn't terribly family-oriented. Or they don't have a choice, and it's about money, depending on how it's written. But, um, so yeah, Aliens, we, we digressed... Uh, which is fine, but Blade Runner is coming out. The reviews so far are saying it looks really, really good. I was super skeptical of it. Um, now I'm, I'm holding on to my optimism, but I still remember Tim Burton's 2000 Planet of the Apes. I remember Zack Schneider's remake of Dawn of the Dead. I try to forget them, but I remember the prequels. Um... And sometimes critics are idiots. So yeah, and if you want to talk sequels, uh, the second Highlander movie, or the third, yes, but or especially the, the second because the second Highlander movie took pretty much everything good about the first Highlander movie and ruined it. Yeah, because suddenly it's not this mystic thing. You know, the first one they didn't try to explain where the immortals came from. They just they were there. In the second one, they made them aliens. Right, but they had Michael Ironside, who in, I in a way liked. that didn't even make sense because they showed them on their planet before they ever got right. sent to Earth, and wow, they were still calling him uh, McLeod. He still had an Irish name as an alien before Scottish he ever came name, to Earth. Yeah, yeah Scottish name. It's like that makes absolutely no sense, and it, it was just it was a ridiculous movie. Absolutely. That, 
Although it did have the one great line. There's one line in that movie that to this day I remember when Ramirez, who they're calling Ramirez, who... Yeah, the again, first, they call him first Ramirez movie, and was Egyptian, Egyptian name. And says, I've had many, many names. Well, Ramirez is Spanish. So the fact that on the alien planet they're calling him Ramirez, but in Highlander he's actually Egyptian and pretending to be Spanish... Someone should have shot those writers. But uh, when Con- when Ramirez, when Connery shows up and he's getting fitted for a suit, the clerk at the store, because he comes in in, I, I think, like battle garb, and the clerk says, Sir, we are the oldest gentleman's store in Scotland, because he's not wanting to, to serve this sort of Ren looking bum. And Connery's response is, Sir, I am the oldest gentleman in Scotland, and hands him a gold coin and gets a new suit. I, that just, something well, about that was awesome. You know, and it's Sean Connery. And Sean Connery can make a turd smell better. Right. So, well, th- there's and and that's re- one of the few good things in the second Highlander movie was Connery's reappearance. Right. So, um, yeah, sequels usually scare me. Um, and most people who make sequels or make prequels get on my list of directors that if I ever actually meet them, I'm going to punch them in the nuts. I feel morally obligated. Zack Schneider. Um, uh, Batman, Superman is enough reason for him to get... Uh, Dawn of the Dead. Just that. <coughs> you, you take Romero's masterpiece and turn it into something that's not even a good B-zombie movie. And I know younger listeners will disagree with me on that, but it's crap. Grow up. Um, and Batman versus Superman, and maybe he needs to move further up the list because he's done it twice. Lucas, prequels. I, I mean, for God's sakes, George. Um, Again, there's a matter of some incredibly bad writing in, in those well, movies. Inconsistency within a movie itself really bugs me. Um, and stuff that just doesn't fit and doesn't make sense. Like... Young, uh, young Anakin, being told to wait in the little spaceship. You know when they when they go into the palace at the end, and this spaceship just happens to have a helmet that fits this ten year old child in it, because they keep kids' helmets in there. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just the fact that young Anakin looks like the life serial. Ki- well, he doesn't actually look like the life serial kid, but he looks like the kid cousin Oliver from. Um, the Brady Bunch, this like 70s bowl cut kid. And no, no. And they, they told the whole story wrong. But we will save an entire podcast for ranting about, about the prequels. Because the there's prequels. so much stuff wrong. Exactly. Those. And honestly, I, and I'll defend Lucas here, his biggest mistake was waiting 15 years to make them because all of the people who grew up with it, who were true fans of it, had already written the prequels in their heads. And he could have produced a masterpiece, and I think we would all gripe about it. I, I think... Not I, as I don't much. think the griping would have... I think Lucas's biggest mistake was not having people to correct his mistakes that he right, made Right, because now he was it. George Lucas and nobody was there to say, no, George, you're wrong. Yeah. So... Um, Anyways, back to Blade Runner. I've seen a whole bunch of clips from this online. I'm excited to see it. It, like a lot of modern movies, it's got this way more cinematic approach um, for a sci-fi movie. Um, the the big sweeping landscapes and the the broad pans really in cinema used to be reserved for like Lawrence of Arabia and uh, the epics and. I love that that's coming into science fiction now. Blade Runner's got some of that. It's a beautiful view of 
what's now an alternate future, because if you watch the original Blade Runner, Pris was born last year, and we don't have sense, and our planet isn't dying, and the rich people aren't evacuating the colonies, so there's no chance this is actually our future. It's, it's sort of become an... Oh, it could al- be our future. The dates are just wrong. <laughs> yeah, the, maybe the dates are just wrong. But... but- I like the fact that it, in all that I've seen of the new movie, they've kept the aesthetic of the original Blank yeah. Rider. It very much feels film noir, which um, anything that's sort of noir feeling and sci-fi automatically becomes cyberpunk. Yeah, it, it's techno-noir, yeah. is I guess a way to, and, and, to look and at it. We just don't get a lot of that. I mean, there is some, um, and I, I can't remember the names of them, Willem Dafoe did a couple sort of noir feeling sci-fi. Also, I think based on the works of Philip K. Dick. Um his stuff usually isn't translated well onto the big screen. Um, anyone who's listening probably has seen a bunch of movies based on Philip K. Dick. Like The Adjustment Bureau, Minority yep. Report. Uh, Screamers, which is just a fun B sci-fi movie. Uh, bloodshed, androids, killer robots. Missing all of the sort of mind-twisting that uh, Dick does in the book because... We had built androids to fight our wars for us, and then they went nuts and started killing the humans, and so you're rooting for the human protagonist only to find that they were actually androids left over from an earlier war. Um, you know, anyone who's going, wait, I've never read that. Sorry. They're, they're, spoiler statue of limitations. The book was written in the 50s, or maybe early 60s. Yeah, after 50 years, there's, yeah. no, there's no spoiler alerts anymore. Maybe the only thing that I think Philip K. Dick wrote that's actually been interpreted for the screen really, really well as the man in the high castle. And they deviated a lot from the book. Um, just to the fact that it has a second season and a third season. Um, and the book kind of... One of the scenes um, in the first season uh, where the Japanese uh, trade minister flips into the alternate reality, that's almost at the end of the book. Um and he just shows us that there's a reality where Japan and Germany didn't win the war. Uh, did. did win the war? No, didn't. Um, the in the book in in the books they do, but the trade minister is looking at a a piece of sculpture that one of the main character makes, who's Jewish, who is an artist, and sort of meditating on this little uh, necklace thing. He's transported essentially into our world and sees a San Francisco with baseball and America and all of that, and then gets jumped back into his world, and there's just a hint of it in the book. But it's really close to the end. Whereas the, the TV, the, almost a TV show, but it's not, it's an Amazon show, where the Amazon show has had people actually traveling to these alternate realities, um, which wasn't in the novel, but yet, based on everything Dick wrote and his experimentation with parallel universes, it really holds true to the spirit of his work, Unlike Adjustment Bureau, uh, Minority Report, Screamers, um, there's a couple more, and I'm just well, even Blade Runner, right? Blade Runner is a masterpiece on its own, but it's not the other, most faithful of adaptations. Yeah, other than Decker's name, um, there's really not much in Do Androids Stream of Electric Sheep? Decker's name and the idea of what does it mean to be human, um, which I think. Uh, Dick. I, I laugh secretly because in my head I'm still only like 12. But um, Dick does this great job of what does it mean to be human. Sort of revisits some of the stuff that you uh, 
you get from Hamlet and Macbeth. I mean, very tried-true tropes, which... Uh, Actually, Are you able to take it in another direction by showing you what it means to be human using non-humans? Well, uh, absolutely. Using synthetic people to help you view it from another angle. Yeah, the, the sense in Blade Runner, um, Roy Batty, um, specifically in his, his death scene, those are a reflection of us. They're, they're great mirrors, which maybe is what makes this sort of a story really, really work. You've got all the technology, you've got the concern for the technology, and yet it really is a reflection of a, a tried-and-true human condition. So I'm excited about Blade Runner 2049. Um, still a little bit skeptical, but um, we'll see how it goes. You know, that playing with universal themes, um, what does it mean to be human? That's Hamlet. That's Macbeth to a certain extent. That's definitely Blade Runner. But I also think that's what has made Star Trek Star Trek over the years. Um, in the original series, it's Spock, who's half human, half Vulcan, trying to figure, he's been raised Vulcan, so he's trying to figure out what is it to be human? Is that such a bad thing? Uh, next gen, you get the same questions with Data. The modern Pinocchio story. Yeah. He wants to be a real boy. Exactly. Um, and uh, DS9, it's Odo. He thinks he's the last of his kind. He's living on a, a station of all hominid creatures, and he's a like the Mercury in an old thermometer, right, when he's not holding his shape. Voyager brings in Seven of Nine and, and gets that same thing going. Enterprise failed miserably at it and and so well, I much think, I think all Star Trek in a way because the mixture of the alien races on the cruise you have Worf who's a Klingon you have the Cardassians in Deep Space Nine yeah there are other races but it's also a way of exp- exploring d- different parts of humanity yeah yes. but I mean Worf is playing with what does it mean to be a Klingon because he was raised by humans he's a good foil for data and um, lets us get a view of the Klingon Empire that fans always wanted now, Discovery just came out, uh, was aired on TV. I watched it on, on demand because I missed it the Sunday it came out. And all the other episodes are going to be on CBS All Access, which you have to pay for, um, which I think is an interesting experiment for CBS. But um, I don't know if it's going to help kill Star Trek. This show, let, let's... If you haven't seen it yet... Go pause the podcast. Go watch it. Come back. Um, we're uh, a little over a week out, so I think everybody has seen it. And by the time you hear, most this, of the people that want to see it have seen it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I just want to start with the Klingons because Worf's Klingons, the Klingons from the movie, um, the whole, the, the, all the stories about. KLS and the, the Klingon Empire, I thought all of the previous series, uh, well, since Next Gen, did that so well, and I love that. The Klingons on this show, I'm watching it, and I'm going, who the heck are those? What are those? And then they mentioned the sort of KLS, and I went, Klingons, what? What, what are they thinking? I, I get the idea... That the Klingons in the original series, because it was the 60s, all you had to have was slightly dark skin and a goatee, and everybody knew you were a bad guy. And they had no budget, and 
all of these limitations, special effects weren't what they were today. Um, so they revamped him for Star Trek The Motion Picture, gave us the Ridgehead Klingons with long hair and the battle armor. Um, someone had already written the Klingon to English Dictionary, and Klingon is an actual language. Um, and those have been the Klingons consistently. Those were the Klingons in Enterprise, which Discovery is set between Enterprise and between the original series. Klingon shouldn't be different at all. You're nodding. They can't see you nod. Yes. Um, and, and I, I want to swear I don't profusely, like and I'm the trying way to. the new Klingons look. I don't see why they chose to change their look at all. Uh, there was no right. need for it. I mean, I did some research on this one. The showrunners have given... There's been two showrunners for the show. Um, and each one gave a different answer on the Klingons. One said there are 24 clans of Klingons, and they all look different. Which is a great idea and might explain the Klingons from the original series. Um, and the other one just said, basically, these are slightly different Klingons you'll see in episode two. And, and I'm kind of hoping, because uh, what she kept calling uh, the, the uh, Sonequa Martin, uh, Sasha from The Walking Dead, the captain kept calling her Michael, I, I think was her name. Which, Micah, I think. Micah, okay. I, I kept going, Michael, well... Or maybe it is Michael. Maybe it was Michael. Well, in the Star Trek future, everyone's called Sir, who's an officer, regardless of gender, so I could see names losing their gender specificness. Um, anyways, when... Uh, I'm just going to call her Sasha. <laughs> when, when Sasha was exploring the, the ancient station, she was talking about how old it was. And when the, the um, second officer who was from a cattle species, we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, talks about the coffins on the outside. He says some are thousands of years old. So these Klingons have been here for a long time, and maybe because of inbreeding, and there was all the talk about the radiation Sasha was being exposed to, um, maybe they're mutant Klingons. I'm kind of hoping that's the case. But again, in a way, this is a sequel, and I'm very suspicious of sequels. Oh, this is worse than a sequel. It's a prequel. It's a pre well, it's a sequel of a prequel, and it's a prequel. So that makes it even worse, right? Because it's a prequel to Toss, but it's a sequel to Enterprise. I, I kind of pretend that Enterprise never happened. So I just look at this I, as a prequel to the other stuff. There were certain aspects of Enterprise that I really enjoyed, but whoever wrote it got the entire thing wrong. I, I think, having grown up reading Star Trek novels... And having grown up with the original Trek on late night TV, on small TV stations, uh, wherever we lived, um, it was part of my life. And, and the idea of what came before Kirk and Spock actually isn't a bad area to write. But when you write a temporal war, so you're changing the timeline that, you know, I, I mean, my dad watched Star Trek as a very young adult, like someone in his 20s, my grandmother watched Star Trek, my dad's mom. So, and these fans were alive when Next Gen came out, and um, actually I think my grandmother was even still alive when Enterprise came out. So to change a timeline that had been in their minds for 40 years, 30 years I guess at that point, just is stupid. Right. Which is kind of what Abrams did with, the reboot of Star Trek. We will do an entire episode on Abrams. He's another... He doesn't need to be punched in the nuts. He just needs to be drawn and quartered. 
you, you screw with Trek. It, it, yeah. Anyways, Discovery was not done by J.J. Abrams. Thank the gods. Um, what did you think? We Neither one of us likes the Klingons. But no. what did you think about the show? I really only had two issues with the show. One is I don't like the Klingons, and I don't like the way they look. I saw no reason for them to change them. And two, I just dislike on general principle the fact that we're going back and doing another story prior to all the other stories instead of increasing the narrative in the future. Do something after the end of Voyager. Do something that shows us even further how this universe progresses. Not another story where we're back in time, we're back earlier so that you know what's going to end up happening. Right. Yeah. Other I, than that, I, I thought the show was done well. Um, I liked quite a bit about it. I liked, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this right from the beginning. I loved, uh, just like we were talking about with Blade Runner, sci-fi didn't really get these sort of epic uh, cinegraphic landscapes, and yet we get that. Uh, CBS has committed resources to the special effects, um, and it's beautifully shot. And then the, the aliens on the planet where they're opening the well, they look kind of like xenomorphs from Alien, and yet... Not entirely so. It's not like we're going to go, oh, look, they ripped off the xenomorphs. But they've got this weird segment of body structure with armor plating. So it's one of the few times in Star Trek we've seen aliens that aren't hominids, uh, which is has been one of my criticisms of the entire series, that not every alien's going to be an evolved something we there have was, on Earth. I don't remember if it was an episode or if it was a book. I think it was a book where that was addressed where basically the galaxy was seeded right. by a race. So the, there's a reason why most a, races abso- we meet. Absolutely, yeah. The, the ancient ones, it shows up a lot in the Star Trek cartoon. Um, and it's in a lot of books that we were seeded. And there's an episode where they find three orbs that refer to everybody as their children um, that are part of this ancient race. And I get that aspect of Star Trek, but at the same time, either there's this dark history of the Ancient Ones that they exterminated everybody that wasn't hominid, or they're saying that, well, hominids are really the only life forms that evolved, but yet we see the Horda in the original Trek. But in the original Trek, I mean, honestly, I think in the original Trek it was budgetary issues because aliens either were humans with makeup, with the exception of the Horda, and the Tribbles, who weren't sentient, but still... Um, or weird gas giant electro beings that were very reasonably easy to do on the day. Um, I wish Next Gen had fixed that. I wish Voyager had fixed that because they weren't even in our galaxy. And they didn't. You know, I mean, they used the wormhole to, to literally go where no one had gone before. But Discovery has, I mean, I love that they're bringing in some things that don't quite look like us, and, and maybe they'll push it a little further. Um, I love the look of the ship, and I love the feel of the ship, and, and the acting. This is the first Trek show I've ever seen that the first episode made me really interested in the characters. Star Trek's, I think, big flaw as the franchise it's been is that on the, with the exception of the original series... On all of the sequels, it takes a couple of years for the writers to figure out who they are. And to make the characters really interesting. Right. And, um, and in the original series, I mean, 
the epi- the pilot that Roddenberry shot the first time, where his future wife, Majel Barrett, is the first officer called number one, and Spock yells a lot. None of the characters really made any sense. And, and you can see that. We saw that on TV because they cut it into a two-part episode called The Cage using the footage. And I've actually seen the episode uncut because they released that for like the 25th anniversary or whatever. Um, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager. There were a couple seasons into it before the characters really made sense. They, they were constantly tweaking. I'm not sure they ever made sense in Enterprise. Well, and before the characters really got interesting, like you said, where you really wanted to get to know them, they were interesting in a in in certain aspects, like Worf is a Klingon and Odo mm-hmm. is a is a and, founder, and Spock is a Vulcan, and but they weren't they weren't interesting in such a way where you wanted to know more about them. Right, really, they were still kind of bland at first, as because the Star Trek universe is this kind of disinfected, kinder version of. Our world. Sometimes. I mean, Roddenberry had the vision that as humans, we could get past all of our petty squabbles. We could get past sexism. We could get past racism. We could get past nationalism. And we could thrive. And, and that has been definitely in every Star Trek series, with the exception of DS9, that was very darker, even from the beginning. Um, and... I think that's what we needed at that time. But yeah, th- th- there is a universal optimism in Star Trek, um, which is one of the reasons I loved it. I, I also know that being universally optimistic, which, which is a, a sort of standard thing in science fiction, the vast majority of science fiction has been about the optimism for humanity. There's been a lot of dystopian written, but in the, the total arc of all sci-fi, most of it is optimistic. Um, this one, I, I don't know that it's going to be kinder and gentler, right? The first episode... Uh, close to a war. Yeah, the first officer starts a war mutinies on the captain. Spoiler alert if you haven't actually Yeah, well, I, we, I, told I, them, I told, told them, them to go watch it. And come back. So here are my issues with, with some of that. I like the fact that the first officer mutinied on this one because it's something we hadn't seen before. Right. Hopefully the writers will take that in an interesting way, dealing with the ramifications of it. Um, it's a they sequel make of it, a prequel and a prequel of the original, so I am suspicious. They make it, they give the first officer good reason. She truly believes that if she doesn't, a lot of people are right. going to die. She's trying to prevent a war. Well, and uh, Sark told her to do it, right? And if Spock's dad tells you to do something, you do it. I mean, I buy that aspect of it. Um... I'm not sure that I buy a, a Federation officer actually mutinying that quickly, but at the same time, we'll see the trailers for the next episode and the fact that the show's called Discovery and that's not the ship they're on uh, makes me worried that they're going to give her a command of ship and that just bugs me, but maybe they're going to demote her and she's a first officer on another ship, or not even a first officer. Right. Yeah, they might demote um, her to something below that on another ship. A- absolutely. Sort of like what they did with Cisco in the beginning of DS9. He'd been Starfleet captain, and now it's like, oh, we'll put you on this space station out in the middle of nowhere, not knowing it was about to become the focus of the galaxy. Um, which then is another hint that this is probably going to be darker. Right? Uh, but we'll have to see what happens. I-, I think my biggest complaint with the show, 
my biggest issue, and I know you and I have talked about this, and we, we disagree. Um, this show takes place 100 years before original Trek. And the world that Roddenberry creates in original Trek, despite all of his pushing for equality and everything else, all sci-fi is always a reflection of the time period it's written in. Um, it's a very sexist world, right? We've got Kirk. Uhura is wearing mini skirts that would get kids kicked out of high school today. Girls. Well, maybe boys too, I don't know. Dress codes are a totally different subject. Um, we never see women in command in original Star Trek. And I kind of feel like setting this 100 years before that and having a female captain and a female first officer... They're, they're trying to live up to Roddenberry's vision, and I think they're doing, so far, a good job of that, of gender doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, right? Uh, neither the captain nor uh, Sasha are actually Caucasian. So, I mean, I think this is amazing. I think this is really, truly Roddenberry's vision, but it bugs me that they set it before original Trek, because then it messes with the Star Trek timeline, and I'm still pissed at Abrams for doing that. But they've said this isn't the alternate timeline, this isn't a new timeline, this is the original timeline. So it's supposed to happen before Kirk and Spock. I don't have the issue with it that you do, mostly because I think, like you said, that it's just them asserting Roddenberry's original vision. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and, and I get that. And I I'm, mean, I'm the only reason that. That, that the original Star Trek came off as patriarchal as it did is because of when it was filmed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Sci-fi always reflects the period in which the writer wrote it. Um, the concerns, the fears, the hopes. Um, I mean, that's why I have never done a count of it, but how many of the original Star Trek episodes are basically loosely covered fables about Vietnam? There's a lot. Um, Friday's Child... Um, where the the tribes are fighting and McCoy has to birth a chieftain's wife's baby. Um, the one where Kirk and one of the Klingons are... The Klingons are given flintlocks to some primitive people and Kirk, of course, breaks the prime directive, which is supposed to be an automatic court-martial by giving flintlocks to the people. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah. It's... That's a direct Vietnam... I mean, it's... Just right. like is going on with us, the Chinese, we are arming them. They are arming this group of people, so we're arming this group of people. Right. I mean, it was. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, so, so I don't think that's actually all sci-fi. I think it's sci-fi television because it's it's more mainstream because you have more. I don't want to say censorship exactly, but you have more input by the the network has input on what they will and won't do. Right. Well, uh, you you have books that were written at the same time that were far more open in its views of gender and and yet there's still all the books are a reflection of the writer's time period, either their hopes or their fears. So you're right. You do have people pushing gender roles um, and pushing the boundaries on equality and all of this sort of stuff, but that's because it's what's concerning them of their time period. There's a reason that the most popular genre of sci-fi right now is dystopian, um, with the exception of young adult, which is just the most popular genre, period, regardless of whether it's sci-fi or whatever. 
Um, I don't know if that's true of romance. I'd be very disturbed if young adult romance was more popular than adult romance, because, yeah, it just, romance is already written at a bad level anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, sci-fi has, has always had the promise of pushing the bounds, and lots of writers have, but it's, it's always a reflection of what's going on at the time period, whether it's a, a historical sci-fi, um, you know, an alternate timeline or whatever. Um, uh, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle. It's 1960s, maybe late 50s America, but the Nazis and the Japanese won. At the time he's writing that, there are a lot of issues going on in the country. Our, our golden boom at the end of World War II is slowing down, and you're starting to see hate groups really sort of rear their ugly heads in the civil rights movement. And all sorts of cool stuff, or not cool stuff, bad stuff, but cool stuff that he can reflect in his novel. Um, so I don't know. I, I celebrate the fact that they're living up to Roddenberry's vision of, of what the future should be like. It just bugs me as being part of the canon. I almost think, had they done one of two things, um, had they either done what you wanted them to do in the first place, which is put it not before the timeline we have, but either after it, or I would be okay with, you know, when Next Gen's going on and DS9's going on and Voyager's going on, they're all kind of overlapping in the same time period. But in different areas. Yeah, the... you, you could revisit that time period. If, if for whatever reason the writers, because in... in um, I think it's in Voyager we first get this idea of temporal police um, looking at timelines. I know they use it in Enterprise. Um, so we do know there is a future where the Federation has time travel and whatnot. But maybe that's just no one's come up with a good pitch for what that series would look like. Because um, you got to be, I mean, what, Star Trek is the 23rd century? Kirk and Spock and them? I think so. And so then Enterprise is the or Enterprise, um, Next, Next Gen, Gen. And, and at all are the 24th century. Um, if you're jumping 100 years, you know, the 25th century, and I don't think anyone's really been able to grasp what that's like. I mean, they tried that with Buck Rogers, but Buck Rogers in the 25th century feels a lot like the 1930s America. Yeah, it's a, it's um, a whole different thing. Um, so, but I mean, they could have said it in the, the Picard world. Um, and then I wouldn't have an issue with the, the female first offer, the female uh, captain. On the other hand, you want to live up to Roddenberry's vision, and you want to make it fit so that Kirk's world doesn't seem so ridiculous, and it kind of does now, I'll admit that, um, for younger people trying to access it. Original Trek, between the special effects and the storylines, I just don't think they get it. Uh, in a lot of ways, but if you had had the female first officer or the female captain, and it's just the way it was, it, it, because then it would fit into the Kirk world, and I'd be okay with that, but with both of them, it just feels like it doesn't fit. I would like to think in Kirk's world, um, 
and I think you pointed this out when we talked about it before the podcast, that Kirk is just a Neanderthal, and so his crew is kind of Neanderthal-like. And the rest of the galaxy isn't that way. We, we see enough of it that we know it kind of is, but I would like Kirk's world to be a world where there are female captains. Um, or and, first officers. And, and, and ships and that we cares. just haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And it's not made a big deal because it's not a big deal to them. Right, exactly. But but having both in this one, it just, I don't know, it, it, it makes it feel out of time. And yet, I get that it's Roddenberry's vision. And it's the vision I want but, for but the see, future. Here's my issue. Okay. The way I see it is them fixing a mistake in the original. and And it's a matter of... <sighs> They've got to learn to fix the right mistake because changing the Klingons, it's one of those things of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Should have left them looking the same. But this is something that needed to be fixed from the original series because it didn't fit with the vision of what it was supposed to be. Right. And and Roddenberry, in the, the original pilot, Majel Barrett was number one. She was the first officer and the network would not allow that. Um, which is why, although in Next Gen, we have Riker who was called number one and not a woman. So Next Gen has the same problems, actually. Um, but it has a female doctor, which is a step forward from... Yeah, it, it is. But then you have the counselor and... Uh, what's her name? The Deanna Troy. Yeah, no, but Myrna Sitrich, I think, is her name. That for the first season, they had her wearing so much underwire to get that cleavage shot. I remember reading an interview with her that it was leaving welts under her breasts to just get a cleavage shot. So, we, we talk about Kirk being a Neanderthal. I'm not sure that uh, the writers and producers of Next Gen also weren't Neanderthals, yes. as I'm thinking about it in hindsight. And, 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 but also in, in the favor of Next Gen is they also had their security officer as a female, originally. Of course, right. they killed her off. Well, she but, quit, yeah. Um, that wasn't them, that was her. And then they actually put the Klingon as a security officer, which had always made more sense. Yes, except for I think they wanted to show that a, a female can be the strong security officer. And the Klingon can be the science. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they were trying to make that work. And um, Deanna Crosby? Yeah, she's yeah. Bing, Bing Crosby's she was granddaughter. Bing, yeah. um, left the show um, and then immediately went and did a shoot for Playboy. Um, I was 15. I know these things. Um, Maybe they weren't paying her well enough. At the... I, I, I think it was, well, if I remember correctly, because I read Starlog, um, which I don't even know if it still exists, but it was a magazine about science fiction. Mostly, sometimes they do fantasy, and they had a preference for Star Trek, obviously, from the name. But um, she felt like, with the ensemble cast they were building, that her character really never did anything, and there were no story arcs for her. And... Later in the series, when they had the whole, she had been she didn't die when they were in an alter or when they had done a time travel episode, that she had been captured by the Romulans from the parallel version of herself. They brought her the actress back, playing her half Romulan daughter. Um, so I, I I'd like to think that she left because she didn't think the character was working well, and when they gave her a good story arc, she came back. Which I I think like we said before. The first season or two on these shows, the characters don't have great arcs they, yet. They don't. You just gotta wait it out until they give you a good arc. Yeah. Or in the case of Enterprise, they cancel it. <laughs> yeah. Because I, or the I other. out of duty, I watched the first season of Enterprise and went, okay, I've learned that you have to wait two seasons. I'll turn it back on in two seasons, and then found out it was being canceled. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. 
but uh, I, I've got a lot of hopes for Discovery. Um, I think that setting it right from the get-go that a war is about to start will get a big enough audience base who wants that sort of space opera galactic empire story um, to justify the special effects budget it has to have. One of the, uh, the big problems with science fiction on television, you get some great concepts, but they're always a lot more expensive to make than a sitcom or a reality TV show, and networks really look at expense. I mean, it's one of the reasons Firefly got canceled. It wasn't cheap. That's one of the reasons Sarah Connor Chronicles got canceled. That's one of the reasons um, Almost Human, which is a sort of Philip K. Dick-inspired near-future story, which relates back into Star Trek because the Doctor in the new series plays the lead in it, and he's really good in that, unlike the J.J. Abrams movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this show was so epic in the opening episodes that uh, its budget for special effects have got to be huge. Well, that and I think special effects have gotten cheaper to do well. They, they have, but they're still really expensive. Put put this against any inanely stupid sitcom you can think of, and it's got to get like ten times the audience because it costs ten times as much to make it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm but it is a sequel of a prequel and a prequel of the original, so I am very suspicious. Um, really, really suspicious. Well, how would you, okay, on a rating of 1 to 10, just for our readers, or listeners, sorry, right? Uh, how would you rate this first episode to help guide them on whether or not you think they should watch it or not? Just this episode? Yeah, because that's all we can really judge so far, is right. the first episode. I've, I've seen the sneak peeks of the next one. But if you look at this but, episode... Judge it based on how well you think this episode done and how well you think the series will be based on that. Okay, so in in reality, if a new sci-fi show premieres and something in the commercial catches my eye, I will watch it. And I'll usually give it... A couple weeks to a, a see. A couple weeks, maybe, it, maybe an entire season. Um, there's sometimes I can't give them an entire season because they're so bad. Like, um, the adaptation of, uh, the TV version of Minority Report. I was so excited to set my DVR, watched half I th- an I episode. I think I made two episodes. Yeah, I, I, I made one episode, and then, uh, And I so wanted it to do well. Right, and then let it sit on my DVR, and I think it was episode six, they canceled it, and so I deleted it all, going, yay, something I don't have to watch. So... Sci-fi could look like total, utter trash, and I'll usually give it at least a second episode, Minority Report being the difference, Um, and with the ability to DVR stuff. This one, I have enough hope for it, and the way it was, again, it's got to pull a huge audience to pay for its budget, and I'm really worried that they're going to produce a great show, because this, other than my issue with sort of adjustments to the timeline, and the... Klingons. I mean, who, who even thought that was a good idea? But if you pull the Klingons out of it, and you pull my concern about the Star Trek uh, canon, then I'd probably give this show an 8 or a 9. Um, because those two are very minor gripes. I think the acting is the best we've seen in any Star Trek series. In, From the get-go. In the first episode. Yes, in yeah. the first episode. Um, I think they gave us... A really com- 
compelling idea of the first officer's backstory. And even though I didn't see any Vulcans on the crew, it relates to Vulcan and relates to Sarek specifically. So now we're tying into, given Vulcan's longevity, um, we might even get to see a kid Spock. Um, Vulcans live considerably longer than humans. And while we don't really have much on any of the crew other than really the captain, the first officer, and the science officer. Yeah, he was the science officer that, I mean, it was interesting, but when he was talking about, you know, my species is a cattle species, right? We're food on other planets sort of thing. We've evolved from that, which explains why he's jumpy and why he's always suspicious, and I think that's kind of cool. But the reality is, if you're a planet's food source, you probably don't evolve into sentience. And that kind of bumps me. Well, in some ways, I think intelligence seems more likely to evolve in prey than predator. Um, but the prey get eaten, so they don't really ever have the chance to move up that evolutionary food chain. I would, I would have liked unless you have suddenly you have a smarter prey, and so it doesn't get eaten. I mean, and and, and the writers, the writers may, and I'm sorry, I just over talked to you, but the the writers may at some point explain how the predator species on the planets got wiped out. And then they have a chance to evolve. Well, if you if the prey becomes smarter than the predator, suddenly it avoids the predator and the predator starves. I mean... But, so, the only thing we really have to, to go off of here is, is, you know, humanity, right? And apes and monkeys and whatever aren't uh, pr- uh, prey species, but they are prey for certain animals. And getting smarter allows them to outwit the predators. But then they become predators, predators themselves. More so, yeah. Cause, so, I don't know. I, I hope they'll add some more to it. They took the time to have him say that and then explain why his species is always suspicious. And I think it's a cool hook. I'd like to see him elaborate a little bit. What did you think, score-wise? I, I think I would give it a 7.5 to an 8. It, it was well done... Uh, it's definitely got a lot of potential, um, and I want to see where it goes from there. It's definitely worth seeing where they where they take right. it. Now, um, which is probably higher than what it would have given most of the other opening episodes of oh, the Star Trek series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think Enterprise. I don't know. I I liked Voyager from the get go. I thought the whole we're jumping into another. Um, quadrant. This is a whole new world for us to discover. That hooked me in the first two episodes, and then when I actually saw their view of what the world was, and then nobody's backstories really compelled me. I guess it was the third episode that I almost gave up on Voyager. Um, I don't think it was. I don't think their first two episodes, because it was a two-parter, were as well done as this one. Um, but I think it's much further ahead than Enterprise, DS Nine, and Next Gen. Um, all three of those I watched beyond the first couple episodes out of loyalty to Star Trek. This one, unless they royally start screwing well, things and, up. Well, and to be, to be fair, back then, you didn't have very much sci-fi to choose from on TV. So right. when Next Gen came out, it was sci-fi and it wasn't horrible, so you watched it. Well, ab- absolutely. Um. <laughs> well, and because all the sci-fi at that period was either reruns or it was essentially syndicated on, on smaller networks. You had Next Gen, you had um, 
Oh, just a whole bunch. Kung Fu well, you, the Legends continues. You had a slew of, of sci-fi that came out in the 80s and early 90s that was a season or two long. Right. We, um, Quantum Leap actually being the exception. Yes, which was, was, again, one of your longer good sci-fi series. It didn't require nearly as much of a budget because they had all the leaping shots. And because it was traveling within his own lifetime, you didn't have to do a lot of period pieces. And if, if you did, it wasn't super far back. Mm-hmm. So And it was... No futuristic, for the most part, no you, futuristic you, yeah, you, set pieces, no advanced technology. You rarely was, saw the lab in our day, um, which was a good thing. Um, favorite character in Quantum Leap actually was Dean Stockwell's character. Yes. Al, I think. I think that's probably true of most mm-hmm. people. Um, so, interesting uh, side note. with um, We're doing the Neuralink's... Neural Nets, Uplinks, and Wetware call right now. And um, we just closed out a couple days ago the zombie call, so people will be seeing zombie stories on, on the, the website. One of the people who submitted to us, who I, I won't use his name right now, um, but we accepted his story because it's really well done, uh, has written... Well, actually, we have two people that have, have written that relate to what we're talking about. Uh, the one I'm thinking about, though, and, and worked as a screenwriter on a couple episodes of Voyager. That's not the one I'm thinking about. Um, yes, so, uh, and we may talk to him and see if maybe we can get him as a guest on the podcast about Star Trek later. But one of the other authors who has written stuff has a indie film that he wrote that's in production, and Dean Stockwell is the lead in it. Which is a very cool thing. Yeah, so... And, of course, the other main character in Quantum Leap was Scott Bakula, who unfortunately was the captain of Enterprise. the Enterprise in the Enterprise. I, I loved Bakula in the Star Trek universe, because he's not a great actor, but he's fun, and I appreciate his work. Um, but I just so hated that show. <laughs> I want to go back to earlier just a minute, because, you know, you... S- when, when I said that, I think mainly it was mainstream media that was affected by the bias of its time. Right. After thinking about that, I have to kind of take it back. Because if, if you look at writers back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a big influence by the market. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, who is a fantastic science fiction fantasy writer, um, female, which was right. unusual at the time, is progressive as she was at the time there were still uh, in her Earthsea books she made the main character a male mm-hmm. because she couldn't get away even being a female science fiction writer which was rare at the time she couldn't get away with doing a female protagonist absolutely I mean and, and that's that was the market as much as anything else we as like and, anything else the market can affect what the artists can create. Right. That's well, what they can sell once they create it. And and that's true, right? Especially with traditional book publishers. They have, for a genre, they, they've got it down to sort of a science. I, I think in, in exact science. But a science that says, if you have X, Y, and Z, these plot tropes, these points, these whatever, we will sell this many copies. And they make their decisions based on that. Um you know, right now there's more freedom to have a female protagonist and there's more freedom to have minority protagonists. Um, but still, if you walk into the bookstore and pull the latest releases in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, nine times out of ten, it's going to be a white male. Because it, it reflects the... It may not reflect our views as readers, because I think sci-fi readers have evolved 
because really that's what sci-fi is about, is showing us either what we should prevent. Ray Bradbury had this great, great quote when somebody asked him, you know, why do you write science fiction to predict the future or something to that effect? But his answer was, I don't write it to predict the future, I write it to prevent it. Right, so sci-fi gives you this challenge of either, here's what bad's going to happen, you, the reader, fix it. Yeah. Or, Which here's is, what we can become. Yeah, and, and that's two different ways of looking. You look at Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, or if you look at Orwell's 1984, both of those were predictive, don't let this happen to the world right. kind of stories. Exactly. Um, but you Star look... Star Trek is generally the other version of that, is look at right. what we can become if we, if we put our minds to Star it. Star Trek, Star Wars gives that optimistic view. Um, good triumphs evil. Um... Trying to think of of other just clear, clean cut, optimistic sci fi, even the first Matrix, right? Neo manages to save the day. Um, I well, didn't, I didn't like the sequels, but it's it's the first Matrix. Yes, Neo triumphs, but it's still a dark version of the future where mankind has put itself in this horrible position where it's batteries for right. But but it, but at the end of it, you now have someone who knows how to manipulate the Matrix. And one way to continue that is to have the freedom of it, of, of humanity, right? Um, on the other hand, if you live in a world that you, you're very comfortable with, that you're happy with, even though it's the Matrix, I think a lot of people have given the choice of everything you know is a lie, but you're comfortable. I mean, Cypher makes that choice. I, want to, I know the steak isn't real, but I love it. Right, there are a lot yeah, of certain people rather, who will do I'd that. I'd rather taste the fake steak than the mush that I'm having to eat in the real world. Exactly. So, but I mean, the ending of the first Matrix, it's optimistic. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, any of, and these are older ones, but any of the Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, the the old classic pulps, John Carter of Mars, um, all of this stuff. The fact is, is that humans triumph. Um, and I know there's a lot more, but I'm just kind of blanking out on that. So, and, and maybe it's just the smaller writers. Oh, uh, Millennium by Ben Bova and Kensman, uh, my favorite sort of book. And actually, Kensman was a prequel to Millennium. So I will maybe reconsider my prequels are always bad because it's not as good as the first, but it's a really good story. Um, so yeah, I mean, sci-fi is always going to be you can envision the world of what happens if these bad things happen as a writer. Or you can envision the world of what can we do if we really try. And, and sci-fi is always colored by that. I mean, there's a reason in the 50s most, a certain amount of sci-fi novels and definitely the movies that are popular are all about the consequences of dropping the atomic bomb. Yeah, a lot of the monsters created by radioactive fallout in, in that time period. In, in the 50s and the 60s, there's a reason that... Robert Heinlein's um, Puppet Masters spun off every single Invasion of the Body Snatchers movie because a reflection of our culture, which is shaped by our time, is this fear of losing our individuality. I mean, there was even a, a rel- I mean, I guess it's 20, 30 years old now, called The Faculty Starring John Stewart that was based on the Puppet Masters, and it's about an alien that's turning people into pod people. Um, that trope has been revisited again and again, and if you were a, a non-Western filmmaker, it wouldn't be as scary. The, 
the versions of it produced in the 50s really seem to be a fear of communism. And the later versions seem to be a fear of loss of, of true individuality, like your brain and not just your culture. Um, I don't know. I, um, yeah, we need to spend some time on Ursula K. Le Guin and Anne McCaffrey at some point. Both very talented writers that don't really get a lot of attention. Um, Le Guin writes very, very much in a literary style, so yes. a lot of pulp people, people who really enjoy pulp fiction may not transition into a work. McCaffrey, on the other hand, with Dragon Riders at Pern. Um, it's, I mean, it's space dragons. <laughs> you, you can't really get more pulpy than yeah. that. So, um, we've probably gone on long enough for our listeners today, and I think we've covered everything we've, we've wanted to. Blade and, Runner's coming out on the 6th. a lot of stuff 6th. we weren't planning on. Yeah, so. Blade Runner's coming out the 6th. We both think you should watch Star Trek Discovery. Give it a shot. Um, and we want your neural nets, uplinks, and wetware stories. But um, another thing we want you to think about, right? This podcast for us is fun. We're enjoying it. These stories, we love the pulp stories and have loved the current submissions we have gotten. Um, and we're doing it for the love of the art. But, you know, we're also running the website, the podcast. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Friday Night Freak Show, where we're going to show you uh, the best and worst B-movies around. Um, should be fun. In October, we're going to do a whole bunch of zombie movies in honor of the stories up on the website. Um, so, you know, you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or wherever. Check out the website. It's astoundingoutpost.com. We uh, provide you with movies and classic radio pulp. Like The Shadow. The Shadow, right, which we're running right now. At some point, we'll be adding other radio pulp into it. Um, Monday through Friday, there will be stories written by up, hopefully up-and-coming authors. Um, some of them are novices that maybe this is the only story they've got. Uh, October, it's Zombies. November, it will be the... the neural Nets, Uplinks, and Wetware stories. And December, it's Ghost, Ghouls, and Grave Robbers. Um, but while you're at the, the site, you know, check out all of the, the content we're providing for you and enjoy it. And if you're interested, you, know, you can check out our shop. We've actually spent quite a bit of time sort of calling Amazon and other places on the Internet, finding the geek and pulp merchandise that uh, we want to buy. Um, and maybe you will too. Um, help help support us in our quest to bring back the golden age of pulp. Yes. And thank you for your patronage. Yes. And now I really do need to get the audio clip of, and remember next week, same bat time, same bat channel, um, from Batman 66, or maybe the ending of Lost in Space. But next Wednesday we will have a new podcast for you. And uh, what we're talking about superheroes next week, right? Yes, and uh, we might wait till our next podcast, but I think we'll do a review of Marvels and Humans, which by the time this airs should already have aired. Um, Absolutely, I've heard bad things about this, so we'll. See I've for heard ourselves. worse things about it, but we we will watch it and find out for you. That's what we're willing to do for you guys. Yes. We're willing to watch the crap so you don't have to. And that's a brilliant tagline. Uh, absolutely. That is our public service. We'll watch the crap and tell you not to. 
Um, also, for those of you that are interested, um, especially since the call right now, the stuff up on the website is zombies. Walking Dead is coming back. I'm excited for that. And we may have some special bonus stuff coming out related to The Walking Dead. So we will, well, we won't see you and you won't see us, but you'll hear us next week. Same time at theastoundingoutpost.com. Oh my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. Finally, we did it. You made it!